Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's September 1st and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew House Barbie and I'm here as always with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Well, Matt, I'm doing doing all right. Not as good as somebody that randomly receives $10 million from crypto.com into their account. <laughs> well, I mean, qu- questionable about how, how good they're doing right now. I mean, it was probably great when they were buying their mansion, um, but maybe not so great when they asked, when crypto.com asked for their money back, I assume. <laughs> yes, yes. Exciting story that we will dig into in uh, this episode, as well as several others. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We've got a lot to get through. Um, I'm going to give you an insight into how some crypto projects are spectacularly mismanaged. Um, We've got some, of course, stories around uh, crypto.com and just the most bizarre stuff happening there. Um, Exciting news on Arbitrum. And if you're not that familiar with the Arbitrum blockchain, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And some updates on Mt. Gox, of course, we'll also have all of the weekly greatest hits in our wrap-up section as well. And with that, uh, we'll, we'll kick things off right after this. If you're struggling to get your head around the complexity of decentralized finance, I have something just for you. Decrypting DeFi is an online course where I walk you through all of the important concepts within DeFi and share step-by-step tutorials on how to start generating income from your crypto assets. Whether you're interested in this from an investment point of view, or just want to better understand how things like yield farming, liquidity mining, and staking works, the course will have something for you. Head over to mhb.xyz forward slash DeFi to learn more. Our first story of the day goes to a metaverse gaming company called Ragnarok. And this was all centered around a article that, or at least a, a, a blog post, <clears throat> that the founder, uh, Fanfaron, uh, has just recently published, where kind of gave a bit of an overview of how he and their leadership team have been running the business today. They are not a DAO. They are a, a private entity. They haven't really shared much details of this. But the TLDR here is that the founder admitted basically he lost $1.8 million worth of treasury funds speculating on ETH, essentially gambling, has been taking a pretty insane salary. Um, and I can't imagine that crypto Twitter has been very forgiving to, to all of this, let alone the community. So it's been very interesting to dig into this a little bit. And I, I just wanted to share some of the information because it's just like unbelievable, really. So Ragnarok. What are they? Right, so it's a it's a it's a blockchain game uh, uh, that's that launched. I want to say about a year ago. Uh, it's worth noting the game itself actually only launched at the end of April this year, basically the the start of May. So it's only actually been live for um, two to three months. Or so, and they'd. Initially raised 1.75 million from a seed round of in, of investors, a private raise, and they did one big NFT mint. Um, I think it was at the end of last year or the start. No, I think it was the start of this year, uh, which netted them 15.5 million dollars into uh, the the treasury. 
Uh, they've since then made around about $2 million worth in secondary sales royalties. Here's, here's the interesting thing. So first of all, the founder in this absolutely bizarre article that he wrote um, just casually mentioned that he thought it was a great idea to convert some of the, uh, the, the cash that they held into ETH as ETH prices were starting to drop at like the peak of the bull market <laughs> and then kept went on to panic sell continuously to the point where he'd lost $1.8 million of treasury funds. That is their entire seed round gone just from gambling basically with the, with the funds, which is absolutely absurd. Um, and then he, he kind of went on to say how, you know, don't worry, I'm going to personally re- replace this. We've been making sure that um, we're, we're, we're cutting costs in lots of areas. And uh, I, I think this is my favorite quote from this, where he says, I've already reduced my NFT compensation in the past by $600,000. I'm now returning $600,000 from an NFT sale compensation, and I will not take any compensation for the next four months, which is approximately $200,000. Let's just break this down a moment, right? This is a project where the game is only just really launched. They've already lost the equivalent of their seed round. And the founder is currently now paying himself $600,000 worth in just his base salary, not including the bonuses that uh, he, he also outlines. And he'd previously reduced his compensation by $600,000. So that means at some point he was paying himself like $1.2 million and they were pre-product just in a raise and they were just developing at, at, at this point, which is on its own astonishing. And... They, they shared the total expenses that they've been having across the business and showed across um, a load of the core team what the overall salary was. Like the average salary there was like $54,000 um, across the, the rest of the team. So I'm sure the team probably looking at this like, hmm, yep, you're the founder, but okay, this is kind of weird. They they also, in the expenses, they, they, they bought out one of their co-founders. Um, it's due to an internal conflict, I think, the way he framed it in the the article was something like they didn't see eye to eye, so they bought him out. He owned a pretty significant amount of the token supply. I think somewhere between six or seven percent. Uh, could be slightly off on that by like a point either way, but uh, it was around that. Uh, so they they bought him out for one point five million dollars. Again, similar amount as what was raised in the seed round, um, and unbelievably put zero vesting or lockup on on the tokens um at all so that was kind of astonishing they talked through the operations of how they manage everything and shared how they uh a bunch of just wallet addresses that they've used to kind of transfer funds around none of these are multi-sig wallets so the the risk here is enormous they, they shared loads of them publicly where they're like okay this was a wallet that was set to be uh, my bonus, and it contained like a million dollars worth of tether. I, I, I don't quite understand what these bonuses are necessarily for. Sure, you're well within your rights to be offering bonuses out. I, I'd find it more usual if the bonuses are going to like, maybe like execs that they've hired and lured in, right? Versus like the founding team. But it's just unbelievable. And, uh, and so 
this is just another great example of where Web3 companies need to grow up. The tone of the, the article is just astonishing. And, you know, the, the, the positive here is that the founder is actually personally repaying the lost funds, largely, though, by just reducing his already exorbitant compensation. However, the, the thing I found most amazing about all of this is he's remaining on as CEO with the backing of investors. Like, who, who in their right mind, Austin, would back this person <laughs> after he's effectively just like, you've just done this seed round. He, he effect, effectively spanned the roulette wheel, lost it all, and was like, oh, okay, uh, let's just keep going. Uh, and has just like time and time again continued to like just show complete lack of awareness. It's, I mean, I'm no doubt we'll probably be talking about this project in a, in, in a year's time about how something else has like blown up in it. But this this project itself was a pretty significant one in like the GameFi space. So it, it kind of shows you the lack of professionalism, I think, and just the, the mismanagement that happens in many of these projects. Yeah. Interesting thought experiment though, Matt. Like, do you think if the ETH that he gambled, the $1.8 million roughly uh, speculating on ETH had actually appreciated would would folks still be upset would we still be looking at this through like with the same level of scrutiny or would it have been some type of genius move i mean i want to believe that scrutiny would still be applied to it like wow that was reckless right but i don't know trying to like understand (laughs) i don't think so i i think i think uh, i think that's a very valid point i think that crypto twitter and the community of like ragnarok will probably be saying he's a hero and he's a genius like they were with Do Kwon uh, and, and everyone else was, right? But like it, it's success very easily papers over negligence in this space. And that is what I think is like unforgiving, right? It's like he, he didn't disclose any of this, which I think is the, that is the issue. The, the fact that he lost the cash is actually immaterial. The issue here is that he did not seek approval from any like, independent party investors or or whatever to do this and just went ahead and did it and then like the consequence was he lost cash if it gained cash it's still incredibly negligent and just silly and unnecessary risk because at the end of the day let's say he made 1.8 million from it like was it worth it for like the the risk It, it just doesn't feel like it to me it's like that's your runway that you're playing with. That's that's your impl- like your your team's salaries that you're playing with. That's the credibility of the project and what all of the investors and uh, ecosystem participants are 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 kind of like held together around with. It's just not what a responsible custodian would do. Um, yeah, that's exactly correct. And I think that your observation that success masks negligence is something that is so broadly applicable to this space right now. We've had this yeah. huge onslaught of negative stories around mismanagement and people losing funds and going bankrupt and all of this. And uh, none of that was being discussed when huge gains were happening and the market was propped up by a ton of you know money that was going around and everything like that. And this, this bear market is exposing... What was actually, you know, negligence in gains as well, right? It's just mm-hmm. that nobody really was paying attention to it because everybody was getting rich and a bunch of money was being made and all of this. But I, my hope here 
is that this can bring about some degree of scrutiny, even when things are going well, to where we could ask, you know, okay, so let's say that you gambled $1.8 million, or it seems like probably more than that, because this was just a loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, and then you you gained a couple million dollars as a result of it. Is that something that we think is a responsible thing to do? Are we really willing to risk our project and our treasury and all of this on that? Even though we made a couple million dollars from it, the answer really should be no. Like that was not yeah. the right thing to do, even if you even if it turned out well. So something to think about as we work our way through this bear market and hopefully eventually come out of it into more positive and uplifting times, we should still apply the same degree of scrutiny. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, speaking of negligence, let's jump into a pretty incredible (laughs) second story of the day. Crypto.com, that huge firm out of Singapore, you're probably familiar with their advertising. I was watching F1 over the weekend and they're all over the track. And we've got a pretty cool interesting crypto.com advertising story in the wrap up as well. A <laughs> uh, bit of an update there. Yeah. But um, crypto.com, uh, yeah, that huge firm, they accidentally sent a woman $10.5 million <laughs> instead of $100. <laughs> and get this, Matt, they didn't notice for seven months. <laughs> they could have uh they could have put that towards um sponsoring another uh like uh stadium somewhere or uh, a big music arena you know th- 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 this is uh this is incredible i i just this is my favorite bit that they didn't notice for seven months um yeah also yeah, just it's... fat fingering at that level is just incredible to me Oh, yes. Well, we will get into that. So what happened here? It turns out a woman in Melbourne, Australia, had requested a $100 refund from Crypto.com and then to her surprise, ends up receiving $10.5 million. So what does she do, Matt? Does she call him up and say, hey, you gave me like $10.4999 million too much and I only needed $100? (laughs) Oh, no, of course not. What she does is she opens a joint account with her sister in Malaysia and transfers $10 million into it and then sends the remaining half million dollars to her daughter. (laughs) I love this. Yeah. First of all, what a move. (laughs) Like, that is a bold decision. You've you've sat down and you've went, okay, they've sent me 10 and a half million. They didn't mean to send me 10 and a half million. I am going to spend this money <laughs> and I am going to pray, pray that they just forget. Or maybe, maybe I was actually due a 10.5 million refund and I just didn't realize it. Maybe that's the, I wonder what the lies that this person told themselves that, uh, around like this justification. Well, Austin, what did they do with this, this money? Like, uh, did they donate it to charitable causes? Did they start a foundation? Uh, did they buy Bitcoin? What happened? Ah, man, all of that would be a no. They went out and did the most logical thing and bought a luxury mansion with a gym (laughs) and a movie theater. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so beautiful as well, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, they they could have bought, no, they couldn't quite afford Do Kwon, uh, the Three Arrows Capitals yacht, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, But damn, yeah, they went big. They bought a pretty nice house. 
it's great. quite the house. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, if I were her, I probably would have just waited for that yacht fire sale. I mean, eventually it's got to get down into the $10 million territory, right? De- but definitely. nevertheless, she was operating on bought time because seven months later, Crypto.com conducted a company audit and they said, hmm, there's like $10.5 million missing from our balance sheet. <laughs> what happened? Oh, so it poopers. turns out, I know, yeah. But a- as it turns out, an employee had, uh, yeah, fat fingered, the, as, as you put it, Matt, they entered an account number instead of an amount into the payment amount field when they were making the transfer. So I, I, I guess I, I didn't realize that these things were sort of like a manual process oh uh, that a, a human was you know physically doing on the other side of the line, maybe because it was a refund, like that was something that had to go through some type of approvals process and it's a bit manual. But uh, yeah, it turns out that this one employee just uh, you know accidentally typed ten and a half million dollars into the amount field instead of a hundred dollars. And uh, that caused this woman in Melbourne to go on a bit of a shopping spree. And then, of course, you know, Crypto.com realizes this. They try to reach out to her. That doesn't work. (laughs) Um, And so they end up suing her and her sister, who is based in Malaysia. And through this, they were able to freeze her bank account in Australia, but nothing was in it. And then they try to freeze her, her sister's bank account in Malaysia, but nothing is in it. And they get radio silence from her. And then the case ends up going before a judge and it goes to court and the woman doesn't show up to court and loses by default. <laughs> oh, great tactic. I actually like this tactic of bury your head in the sand from day one and never uncover. Just never in any case, just just disappear by closing your eyes and covering your ears. That is the most logical way to, to manage yes. this. Well, <laughs> I'm like, glad I that... see a big number. I'm running with it. <laughs> Not <laughs> yeah. looking back. And so what? So what's what does she have to do from here? She uh, have they just said, "All right, look, you've lost, but we'll let you off." You know, it was our error. Is it, what's the what's the outcome? So it's still unfolding, but what we do know is that she's going to have to sell the house and give the money back and pay back twenty seven grand in interest. So this Ooh. actually turns out to be a net <laughs> loss for her. At least she bought the at least she bought the house at the peak of the uh, house oh. uh, house bubble as well. Oh. oh, that's so true. Yeah, I guess things are going kind of rough in in Australia and New Zealand right now in the real estate market, right? Yeah, so it's happening the same we'll in the UK. To... So I'm sure that's I'm sure that's great. Oh, uh, yeah. Don't God. even get me started on the Austin, Texas real estate market. Oh, my goodness, man. We are taking a serious dive. It's party time. Uh, you're gonna, <laughs> but, you, so, you better start requesting some refunds from crypto.com. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, wow. um, I, I just thought this was such a funny and bizarre story. And you know what, Matt? This reminded me like years ago, like 15 years ago, I actually knew somebody that this happened to. It was a much smaller amount, but it was like $100,000 just randomly ended up in his bank account. And um, he he ended up having it in his account for a couple days, but actually told the bank about it, like thought about it for a little bit, you yeah. know, took yeah. some time, oh my God. <laughs> but ended up telling the bank. And it's like, man, uh, I think now seeing how this is unfolding for this woman, that actually maybe was the right move. You know, you yeah, see the money in it? your account, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not really do you know, there. like the, the, the first thing that'd be going through in my head would have been um, there's, more chance of me coming away with more than I'd bargain for if I just reach back out to crypto.com and like 
let them know about this. I mean, first of all, yeah. even if I didn't think I was going to get something from it, I would absolutely be like, hey, you've made a mistake. Get this cash out of my account because mm-hmm. I know I'm going to be getting like some kind of interest or something if this goes south, which now that person has started to feel. But I'm sure Crypto.com would prefer that the news that they accidentally fat-fingered 10.5 million didn't get out publicly. So I'm sure that if she'd have said at the time, they would have probably even just given her like a couple of thousand or whatever, right? To just like, mm-hmm. as a thank you, almost like a bounty. Like, yes, it's just unbelievably short-sighted that you think that they would just never notice this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. That is the first thing that I thought of when you started mentioning that was like a bug bounty or something like that. Like if yeah. she could go back to them and say, hey, you made this mistake. Can we come to some some kind of agreement where I return this to you, but like I'm compensated in some way and I'll never talk about it. I mean, it's a little bit of a sleazy thing to do, but not as sleazy as buying a luxury right. mansion. Right, right, <laughs> right. I think like, you know, as far as like levels go, that's that's uh, that's, <laughs> that's far beyond it. Uh, wow, that is a beautiful story um you know i would i would wish this person good luck but i think they're fresh out of it i just hope that they enjoyed their time in that beautiful mansion because let me tell you something they're not going to be living in mansions moving forward uh, far far from it uh so yeah uh you reap what you sow i guess but it's going to be a fun one to uh to to follow and see how that plays out uh wild times all right let's jump into our third story of the day Arbitrum, the layer two blockchain that's built on Ethereum, has just executed, this was yesterday, um, its much anticipated Nitro upgrade, which is going to like drastically increase speed, efficiency on, on the network. So <clears throat> if you're not very familiar with Arbitrum, it's uh, become a very popular blockchain, especially for uh, developers, for builders. Um, over the past, I'd say, 12 months. And it's one of the few kind of layer two, at least major layer two, layer one uh, blockchains that still doesn't have its own native token. It uses ETH um, as its kind of primary token, but we know that there are plans to deploy a token. So there's been a whole lot of like when token talk for pretty much the existence of Arbitrum. Now that um, now that Arbitrum, and I think one of the big things here is like in the run up to the merge, Arbitrum is a really important bit of infrastructure in the whole Ethereum ecosystem that's just going to help with uh, scalability. It has dramatically higher like transaction throughput, uh, huge reduction in fees, and the whole focus is just giving like developers a better experience for for applications. But so now that Nitro's launched. Um, they're likely to restart their Odyssey campaign. They started this and they had to put it on hold because Nitro enabled them to like expand transaction throughput. And they did this before the Nitro upgrade and it basically just like absolutely skyrocketed transaction fees. So they had to put it on pause. What the hell is Odyssey, Matt? I hear you. I'll tell you about this now. So the, um, the, the Odyssey... Uh, campaign that Arbitrum are running is like a several week long event and it's all about like encouraging people to use Arbitrum's protocol but the key thing here is rumor has it at least that the activity uh, for that the, like users um, are engaging in on Arbitrum can potentially qualify you for an airdrop uh, so we've seen 
uh, a lot of buzz around this. Um, obviously, the Arbitrum chain has no token yet, but it's probably the most highly anticipated token yet to drop. I mean, um, op, uh, the Optimism token was um, probably the second most anticipated prior to this. Of course, it's not great macro, but I think people love free money. So uh, I think that's like a big piece in all of this. Arbitrum actually uses optimistic roll-up technology to kind of scale ETH capacity. So just just for context, right? Like ETH's transaction capacity is uh, can manage anywhere between like 12 to 15 transactions per second. Whereas like Arbitrum can scale up to 40,000 transactions per second at a fraction of the cost. So <clears throat> this is obviously a very important like building block that's uh, on top of Ethereum. The interesting thing here is like uh, I was looking at DeFi Llama, which is um, a, a really great site. If anyone listening hasn't checked out DeFi Llama, it shows you all the different blockchains, the um, the value locked within them, the number of protocols that are built inside them, and that's that's one stat that I think is interesting to look at here because Arbitrum is the number six overall in the number of protocols that are built on its blockchain. Uh, so they have 108 different unique protocols. When I looked last on DeFi Llama, it may even be slightly more now. Um, despite only being like a year old, that's actually more than Solana. Solana, when I was looking, was like 73 protocols built on top of it. So when you, when you think about that, it's very interesting. I think the Arbitrum space is interesting. I, I actually really like Arbitrum. Um, a lot of the projects are much more DeFi focused. So some of the biggest ones on there that... I probably talked about in the past, uh, like GMX, Dopex, JonesDAO. We had the JonesDAO team on um, on the podcast, I think back in January, PlutusDAO. And then the only other like big, like more known kind of GameFi type project is Treasure, um, which is like also known as like TreasureDAO with a magic token. Um, so they're, they're all Arbitrum. It's a really interesting kind of ecosystem. If you haven't checked it out, I'd recommend taking a little look. Also, go go all the way back and have a little um, uh, look at the interview that I did. I think it was January, it might be February now, with uh, one of the co- uh, one of the founders, uh, Ice Cream uh, from from Jonestown, and you'll kind of learn a little bit more. But the TLDR here is, I think we're going to hear a lot more about Arbitrum um, over the the coming weeks. Should be should be interesting to dig into. Exciting times uh, coming up next. Got a bit of an update on Mt. Gox. So remember all the way back in 2014, there was this huge, huge exchange called Mt. Gox. Uh, it got hacked. We'll go into details on that in case you're not familiar with how all of that happened or you've forgotten. But since then, a lot of efforts have been in place to repay some of the folks that lost out in that event. And trust me, there were a lot of them. Hmm. Well, that repayment plan was originally scheduled for August. It has now been pushed back to September 15th, and thus 137,000 Bitcoin has been held up in the process. So uh, we covered this a little bit a a couple weeks ago, Um, but if you're not familiar with the Mt. Gox situation, I'll do a quick breakdown for you before we dive into the implications of this push. So at the beginning of 2014, Mt. Gox, which is a, or was a Bitcoin exchange in Japan, was the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the world. They were handling about 70% 
of all Bitcoin transactions across the globe. And again, that's as of the beginning of 2014. By the end of February 2014, it was bankrupt. So how did that happen? <laughs> well, hackers ended up stealing around 740,000 Bitcoins from the exchange and an additional roughly 100,000 Bitcoins that belonged to the company. Most of these Bitcoins were taken from online or, or hot wallets, including all of the currency being held in cold storage due to a leak in the wallet. So it was later discovered that the attack actually began as early as September of 2011. So this was years in the making. Why was that? Well, it turns out prior to September 2011, the Mt. Gox private key was unencrypted. And so the private key was likely stolen via a copied wallet.dat file, either <laughs> by amazing, hacking. Isn't it? I know, it's just wild to think about. Um, so this was either by happening or hacking or maybe through an insider. I, it's still not totally clear, actually. But the result is hackers were able to access and cipher Bitcoins gradually from the wallets that were associated with Mt. Gox's private keys without being detected. So the shared key pool of the copied file led to address reuse. And this meant that the company, Mt. Gox, was totally oblivious to the, th the theft. And their systems actually interpreted the transfers as deposits being moved into more secure addresses. So the result is that whenever the wallets were emptied, Mt. Gox interpreted the theft as deposits. And this resulted in an additional 40,000 extra Bitcoins being credited to multiple accounts. Damn, we could, so, have bought, we could have bought a mansion in uh, Sydney or <laughs> Melbourne, should Oh I say. my gosh. And you know what? The wild thing is, Matt, back in 2014, maybe you could have gotten away with it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so um, it's since been revealed that, just fun fact here, Mt. Gox was actually operating while technically insolvent for almost two years and had practically <laughs> lost all of its Bitcoins by mid-2013. They were none the wiser. And additional evidence. That is just classic crypto, isn't it? <laughs> it truly is. It truly is. This set the precedent. You know, this is old news at this point. But I remember when we were covering this, you know, back in the day as, as it was continuing to unfold and everything, uh, how mind-blowing this was. And since yeah. then, additional evidence has actually suggested that Mt. Gox was already missing up to 80,000 Bitcoins from an ex exchange, even before Mark Carpelli's purchased the exchange in 2011 and he's now the person mm. that's like being sort of put under all of this scrutiny and everything as the uh you know the ceo and, and the person in charge of yep. the company during this huge meltdown um it was already in rocky water even prior to his purchase of it so what ended up happening well Roughly 200,000 Bitcoin was eventually recovered, but the remaining roughly 640,000, 650,000 Bitcoin are actually still missing. And that 200,000 Bitcoin that was recovered, it was really just found in March 2014 in old format digital wallets that had been used by the exchange prior to June of 2011. And because at this point, Mt. Gox was already under bankruptcy proceedings, those wallets had been held in a trust for creditors while the company went through its bankruptcy protection. So that starts to bring us up to date around how all of this unfolded. If you want to read more about what happened with Mt. Gox, I found this awesome breakdown of this really significant 
crypto history. Let's be real. Like this is, yeah. this is a, a huge event. Uh, we'll link to it in the description and you can read all the details about how it happened. But basically since that time, Mt. Gox has been going through bankruptcy proceedings. And back in July, we covered that repayment plans were being put into place. We're really exciting. I think we were talking about a, a roughly 150,000 Bitcoin at the time. Now the number has changed to 137,000 Bitcoin. And I couldn't find an explanation for that, Matt. I, I, I don't know I if think, you're aware. Yeah, I, I think I, I know why this was, because uh, I remember around the time seeing this disparagement. I think what just kind of happened is, I think a large media outlet, I don't want to name who because I can't remember exactly which one it was, kind of just rounded up that like nearly 150,000 BTC are when it was actually 137, right? And they just like rounded okay. up, not realizing that that's like several, several million like <laughs> like dollars <laughs> difference, like, right? Uh, so yeah, that's, I think, where it came from. Okay, makes sense. So now we're dealing with the real number, which is roughly 137,000 Bitcoin that are set to be repaid to Mt. Gox's customers. This was originally scheduled for around the end of August. So right about now, uh, this these repayment plans were supposed to be beginning, but it has now been pushed back to September 15th. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that payouts will actually begin on that date of September 15th. In fact, this could drag on for months, if not years. But regardless, the payment plan continues to be pushed back after years and years and years of proceedings. So, Matt, this brings a natural question. What, with Bitcoin hovering around or below 20K right now, could this cause some type of giant dump of Bitcoin on the market and thus mm. tank the price of Bitcoin? I think that's kind of the question that people have been asking. It, it, it seems less like, I mean, this is what, $20,000, $2.7 billion worth of BTC, right? Like this, this is a lot of, of cash. In the grand scheme of Bitcoin, like will this all flood the market all at once? Probably not. Like it's going to drip feed out. Will everyone sell? Probably not. Like, will will a lot of this like hit creditors kind of first? Like, like so, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I know, but I, I'm I'm on the no camp um, personally. But it's it's hard to tell because we just this is unprecedented. Yeah, but I would say although it is hard to tell, the no camp tends to be the camp that most experts are speculating their way into. There is this really good thread from Eric Wall, who is one of Mount Gox's creditors, where he broke this down on Twitter. We can link to it in the description. Uh, and basically, what he was saying is, hey, like all one hundred thirty-seven thousand Bitcoin, they're not all going to be released at once. It's going to take a long time to collect banking details for the thousands of customers affected. So the funds are going to be distributed over time. And yeah, as Matt mentioned, as and as we discussed in our July episode, creditors who were keen to sell, they've already been bought out by large funds. Yeah. Uh, creditors that were longtime crypto participants who have a variety of other interests in the space and likely have adjusted their exposures prior to the distribution, they're, they're not going to be dumping stuff. And then we've already actually seen larger dumps from Luna, and yep. the ongoing uh, three euros capital situation. Not to mention, Bitcoin is like 60% down from its high. So I, I, I could see there being a constituency of customers that would say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to cut my losses after like mm -hmm. many, many years, like eight years of this crap and just, you know, sell my my Bitcoin and, and go. Um, but... You know, people that were involved in Mt. Gox were really, really early 
participants in crypto, right? Yeah. Uh, that most likely, you know, had some degree of technical proficiency and understanding of the technology and believed into it, it, believed in it to a certain extent. So I think it would stand to reason that uh, we're not going to see a huge sell-off. Will there, will there be some selling? Of course. But I think the general speculation that you're going to see amongst experts, of course, of which Matt and I, n- neither of us claim to be, but certainly there are many people that are studying this situation uh, pretty closely, is that there there most likely won't be a price tank, you know, purely as a result of this. Now, could there be price tanks related to other factors? Of course, you're seeing a lot of stories about like the Fed being hawkish and, and all of this stuff. Yeah, of course, there are some factors that are at play here related to that. But Matt, one thing that I thought was interesting sort of related to this is that I saw this um, report that was put together by Arcane Research and, and they showed that exchange outflows have hit new highs since Terra's collapse. So Basically, more and more people than ever are pulling their crypto out of exchanges. We can mm. link to this thread and report as well, and, and you can see like the actual numbers uh, that are being put behind this. But you know, really, the I, I think that what they're indicating here is that there's just a general sort of distrust of having your funds uh, centralized in an exchange, which is kind of old news to us and to everybody that's been listening to us for some time, right? But with so many new people entering into the crypto space over the past couple of years, it is interesting to see this pattern kind of repeat itself as we go into a bear market. Definitely. And uh, I I think that has to be I mean, this is a whole giant topic for for for, uh, for in itself. But you know, for everyday individuals, retail investors, participants, there has to be a better way than MetaMask for sure. And I think, like for most people that came in during this bull cycle, the twenty seventeen bull cycle, um, mainly those two, right? They they would help. They would hold funds in exchanges, and then like we'd have a crypto downturn, hack stuff, and people would get worried, and then they'd go self custody, which is definitely much better not without its risks but much much better in that respect um and i think this is just a a natural progression i think this the scale of collapse and i think what scared a lot more people this time out is um custodians that have been like freezing withdrawals and stuff like that of funds where people like oh i don't want to get caught up in that uh versus like the hack itself that's certainly scarier to me than than a hack uh, to be honest um so yeah interesting stories right let's dive into the wrap up first quick story coming back to crypto.com uh, probably not in light of their 10.5 million blunder, uh, but they have uh, they have pulled out at the very last minute. I quote unquote from uh, from UEFA uh, a 400, pretty much 500 million dollar four year deal to sponsor the UEFA Champions League, um, which is uh, probably the largest uh, kind of soccer competition that is uh, club-based in the world. Uh, so an enormous sponsorship deal currently and has been for a long time sponsored by Gazprom, the Russian uh, gas giant. Um, and Crypto.com is kind of pulling back um, uh, on all this. I mean, in light of trying to cut costs, they've already done layoffs. I mean, they've went crazy. You were talking earlier, Austin, about the F1 sponsorship. Like I feel like 
anyone when I that uh, any one of my friends or whatever when if we're ever watching like Formula One, uh, I I see like and and all of the crypto stuff uh, crypto dot com ads come up. They always ask me like, what is that? Like I see it everywhere, right? It's like, and then they they have like the was it the crypto dot com arena and things like this. So interesting that they would pull out on on that front. And I mean, I'm sure probably a, a good idea to be honest um, at this point. Um, so yeah, that was that one of our one of our quick stories at least. Yeah, got an what, update a, what a on wild a, ride! Yeah, have we got any updates on Tornado Cash, Austin? Oh, going on? <laughs> we would not have an episode without an update on Tornado Cash, uh, and this one is kind of bleak. I guess a lot of them have been, right, Matt? Uh, but it turns out that the remember that developer that was arrested in the Netherlands for working mm. on Tornado Cash. Well, a Dutch judge has ordered them to stay in jail for another three months. And what's even more wild about this is that actually no charges have been brought against him. He oh, was wow. arrested on August 10th, denied bail, and then now has been ordered to stay in jail for an additional 90 days. Uh, kind of dystopian, it's, I would sounds say. Sounds like a nice vacation for him. I'm sure he really <laughs> likes that. Uh, wow, that's, uh, that is not fun. And I didn't even know that that was allowed. Uh, but yeah, definitely not an expert in the Dutch judicial system um but yeah yeah so it does turn out that they are allowed to hold somebody for a total of 110 days under dutch law without them being charged um so they are actually operating within the bounds of the law uh but what is disconcerting about this is the fact that they uh they're not even clear about what types of charges and, and what uh, they will bring against the developer and like what legal basis those charges have. So the DeFi education fund reached out and asked the Dutch police about potential charges. And they replied, and I quote, the development of a tool is not prohibited, but if a tool has been created for the sole purpose of committing criminal acts, for example, to conceal criminal flows of money, then putting online slash making available a developed tool may be punishable. Now, to me, the critical component of this sentence is for the sole purpose of committing criminal acts. We Mm -hmm. spoke at great length in the uh, two episodes ago when we were covering the Tornado Cash situation as it was unfolding about how the platform was used for completely legitimate purposes. In fact, the overwhelming majority of funds that went through that platform, the mixing service, can be traced back to and from legitimate serv- sources, right? Going yep. from a legitimate wallet and to a legitimate wallet. Mm-hmm. It was only a very small portion of the $7.6 billion that went through uh, Tornado Cash. I want to say the, the the study, it was it was like amounted to like 10%, 90 million, $95 million of which was uh, tracked back to the Lazarus Group with North Korea. Only a very small percentage uh, was from, you know, uh, what what looked to be questionable sources or confirmed to be, you know, money laundering or or illegal sources and activity. So uh, the fact that the Dutch police are kind of still in this zone of of trying to tie Tornado Cash to being a tool that was expressly created for Mm -hmm. the sole purpose of of committing criminal acts tells you that it, it seems like 
I mean, you know, my take from this was like, gosh, it almost seems like they're kind of detaining this person until they can come up with some type of charge um, yeah. that that they can pin him to, which is really disconcerting. Definitely. It must be pretty scary. Um, and <clears throat> almost certainly someone that's being made an example of um, for, for sure. Ho- hopefully things play out well. Um, I mean, we obviously had a detailed like breakdown of like the whole tornado cash situation and this scenario in particular uh, a couple of episodes ago um which if 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 anyone hasn't listened to that it's worthwhile digging into if you're interested into the the kind of the whole debacle there um but yeah we'll we'll keep in uh we'll keep on top of this and see see how this plays out over the next 90 days it's going to be a pretty precarious time for for that individual i'm sure but austin what i really want to know is is there any news from Portugal? That's what I really want to know. That's why we I have know. a wrap up. It's my only reason why I jump on this podcast. I just need yes. to know about Portugal, Austin. Well, you know, despite all of the sad news coming out of the Netherlands with our tornado cash developer and coming out of the US with our sanctions, <laughs> <laughs> we do have some positive news coming out of Portugal. Bison Bank has become Portugal's first licensed crypto bank, and they are now operational. And that's all I've got to say about that. We'll see you next week. (laughs) See you next week, Austin. I love it. Can't wait to hear more. All right. Thanks, everyone. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.